Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me in them. The first Timothy chapter four, first Timothy chapter four. Uh, we're reading verses one to five this morning. And we're continuing in our series in First Timothy called Living as God's Household. Now, if you remember, uh, we finished First Timothy 3 last fall. And so although it's been a few months, we're picking it back up with chapter 4 this morning. We're going to jump straight into our passage. So if you are able, I invite you to stand with me. We stand for the reading and the receiving of God's word because it's an act of worship. And we receive God's word as he speaks now to us. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer." The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer once more? Father in heaven, we do ask for your blessing now upon the preaching, the reading, the understanding, and the application of your word. And we pray, O oh Lord, um, that more than the words that I speak, uh, your words uh, would penetrate. Uh, they would do a work in us, leading us to you, confronting us, maybe even correcting us and rebuking us, if need be, uh, Lord, admonishing us. But we also know that by the power of your word, you build us up and you encourage us and you comfort us. So do this because your spirit who is present speaks now to us in the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our passage this morning uh, speaks to the topic of apostasy in the church. Now, what is apostasy? Apostasy is the deliberate and the decisive walking away from the Christian faith. And therefore, an apostate is one who has made the decision to renounce and abandon uh, the faith that they once held. And in recent years, um, many well-known Christians, uh, what we might call Christian celebrities, have abandoned the faith they once held. Um, I can think uh, very popularly of uh, the, the pastor and author Joshua Harris, who wrote um, many books uh, in his younger years, books in his older years, who one day suddenly announced on social media that he no longer uh, followed Christ. Or the uh, singer-songwriter Marty Sampson, uh, who wrote and co-wrote a slew of songs, many songs that maybe you grew up singing in the church, perhaps when you were in youth group, who also one day declared publicly that he no longer identified as a Christian. And I named these two um, examples because they are very well known. But on a personal level, I'm sure that you can fill in the blank. People you know who once walked with the Lord who no longer walked with God. People who you loved, family and friends who have departed from the faith, left the faith, turned away. Now, that's not a recent phenomenon. In the church of Ephesus, as we read today, we see people who were departing from the faith. It's interesting, isn't it, that in the early church, even within just a few decades of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there were people who were once active in the church, people who were once exhibiting uh, signs of faith, who then fell away, who departed. So in our passage today, Paul warns Timothy of this reality. It's a heavy passage. He tells Timothy, this will happen in the church and he explains why it happened. And so we're going to look today at 
this passage under three headings. The reality that some will depart, the cause of departing, and how to not fall away. And so look with me at this first point, the reality that some will depart. Paul begins in verse one, writing these words. Now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. And Paul mentions the reality that those um, who leave the faith, it's not a shocking or surprising reality. In fact, he says the spirit expressly states it, meaning that the spirit has already borne witness to this fact. Like we said, it's not a modern contemporary phenomena that people depart and leave from the faith nor was it simply one uh, that began at the time of the New Testament church. The spirit who authored the scriptures makes it known as far back as the Old Testament that people would leave and abandon their faith in the Lord. And so we read that in the time of Judges, according to Judges chapter 2, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then during the prophets, the time of the prophets, we also get the notice, the alert, the warning that this would be the case. We read in Jeremiah 2. And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. You see, even in the Old Testament, Look at these warnings, these prophecies, these descriptions of people turning away from God. And it carried over into the New Testament. Jesus himself speaks about this. Matthew 24, verses 10 to 12, Jesus says, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Apostle Paul, years earlier than writing this letter, is speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, and he says this, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And the point of these passages is to show us the sobering reality that all of us in this room need to be aware of that it is certainly possible that those who claim to know and walk with the Lord, even show some spiritual fruit, can depart from the faith. Now, how are we to understand this? Does that mean that genuinely saved people can somehow become unsaved? Is this saying that if you are a Christian, you can really lose your salvation? And the answer, according to the Bible, is a resounding no. Those who are truly saved will persevere in their faith until the end. God will preserve those who are truly his by his might and power. So then how are we to understand those whom we know in our own personal lives, friends, families, people we grew up with, neighbors, coworkers, who have departed from the faith? And scripture makes it clear that those who have left the faith to never walk in it again, that they were those who never had true faith in the first place. They had a profession of faith, the appearance of faith. And it looked legitimate outwardly, but inwardly deep in their hearts. They never experienced the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The apostle John writes these words to us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, 
they went out from us. They left the faith, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What is John saying here? John is saying that those who have departed and left the faith and went out from them, that they were never truly of the faith. Because the true mark of those who are in true faith is that they would continue, they would persevere. Now I say this, and I told you that this was a very sobering warning to us. I need to take the time here to clarify and make a distinction between backsliding and apostasy. Right? It can be confusing because from the outset, backsliding and apostasy might look similar because outwardly, what does it look like? It looks like somebody who uh, stops coming out to church, stops reading the Bible, stops praying, stops fellowshipping with other Christians, stops talking about Jesus. And so outwardly, it looks the same. But there is a difference because backsliding is temporary. Apostasy is permanent. Those in a season of backsliding come back to the Lord at some point, but those who have apostatized don't. But here's the thing. At the moment it happens, at the moment somebody's on the path, no longer coming to church, no longer praying, no longer reading the Bible, no longer fellowshipping with Christians, no longer talking about Jesus. At that moment, we don't know what their fate is. If you find yourselves on that path, you don't know what the end is. We are God. We don't know whether if on this path you will turn back to the Lord or whether you will completely turn your back from the Lord. And yet it's because of that uncertainty. We need to read 1 Timothy 4 as a sobering warning, not just the possibility that some might walk away, but the reality that people do walk away. So we read this passage and it makes us look inward. So we realize that we must attend to our faith to grow it, to strengthen it, not simply to coast on by. This was a very present reality for those in the church of Ephesus. Paul writes this. He says, in later times, some would depart. Now, later times make it sound like it's some future time, but Paul was actually talking about a very present reality, present phenomenon, because earlier he had mentioned people who left the faith. We read earlier in chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1, these words. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. You see, for the people in Ephesus, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they weren't just names. They were faces. They were friends. People they knew, people they had talked with, people they went to community group with, people they broke bread with, people they worshipped beside and along with. And so they would have received Paul's words that some would depart from the faith and read it and took it as a wake-up call. And so to this morning, we should receive it as such. That you cannot neglect your faith. That it's like a plant, that if you leave it in the dark, apart from the sunlight, without giving it water, you cannot expect it to flourish and to thrive without giving it proper attention, without keeping a close eye on your faith, without nurturing it and nourishing it, it will wither and die. So dear friends, I plead with you this morning to attend to your faith with watchfulness, with vigor, to take care not to neglect it, but to feed it, nourish it, exercise it, so that your faith would not grow apathetic, that you would not be as some 
who would depart from the faith. But the question is, what led to their departing? What led them to leave the faith? Which leads to our second point, the cause of departing. Paul explains why they departed. He says in verses one and two, he says, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons to the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The people and the church of Ephesus, they abandoned the faith because they devoted themselves to false teaching. And Paul uses really strong words to describe the teaching. He calls it deceitful and demonic. Because any kind of teaching that robs you of faith in Jesus, that destroys your faith in Jesus is that of Satan. And this false teaching, what did it consist of? Well, really, it had two points in its contents. Paul explains in verse three, he says, who forbid marriage, so that's the first one, and second, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What was the content of this false teaching? They were teaching a message of asceticism, a life of self-denial in, in two ways. Deny marriage, deny meat. The foods that Paul here is talking about is meat, namely. Now, this was a problem for, for at least two reasons. The first reason is when you teach something that says you must also on top of everything Jesus did for you, you need to forbid marriage, you need to... Uh, abstain from meats, what you're doing is you're adding to the work that Jesus did. Jesus' work for us in completing and finishing our salvation was perfect, all sufficient, final. And so when these false teachers were saying, well, you also need to, additionally, on top of, don't get married, stay away from meat. They were watering down the gospel. They were questioning the sufficiency of Christ's work. But more than that, do you know what the real great evil and what they did was? It was that they were questioning God and disbelieving his word. Now, what do I mean by that? Take the two concepts of their false teaching, forbidding marriage and also abstaining, requiring abstinence from foods or meat in particular. So, when you look at those two contents of their false teaching, first, you need to know this. God created marriage for humanity's good. The Bible makes this clear. In the Garden of Eden, God created Adam. And then he looked at him, and he was alone, and he said, it's not good for him to be alone. And so he created Eve, and then he instituted the first marriage. Right? We read the words in Genesis 2.24, God saying, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God says, marriage is good. I've given it to my creator. I've given it to humanity that they might flourish and grow under it. And then Jesus, years later in Matthew 19, comes along and affirms the same thing. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so what, what's the point here? The point is just that God determined and declared that marriage was good. And then these false teachers came along and what were they saying? They're saying, no, you can't get married. Marriage is bad. They were undermining God. They were questioning and casting suspicion on his word. God said it was good. Who were they to say it's bad? Take then the second content. Because the Bible teaches that in the new covenant, God made all foods clean. Now, this was a big deal if you were Jewish. 
Because in Jewish faith, the dietary restrictions were such a large part of their religion and their identity. In the book of Acts, uh, the apostle Peter gets his vision. You may remember in Acts chapter 10, he gets his vision. And in the vision, this is what we read. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he's talking about here what Peter would consider unclean food. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter's saying, I can't eat it. That goes against my dietary customs. And what is God's response? In verse 15, he says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And in that moment, what's happening is that God is making all foods clean. God is eliminating all dietary restrictions. So God is saying all food is clean. And then the false teachers come along and they say, no, 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 but you need to stay away from meat. Who are they to question what God had declared, what God had said? You see, in essence, when God said marriage is good, meat is good. The false teachers were coming along saying, "Ah, I think God's a little wrong on this. You should stay away from marriage and you should stay away from me. What were they doing? They were undermining God and his authority. They were questioning God and his word. They were trusting in their own assessments, their evaluations, their judgments, and believing themselves to be trustworthy, authoritative, and God to be wrong. You see, ultimately what leads people down the path of unbelief, it's a denial of God and his word. It's an erosion of trust in what he has declared in his scriptures. Ultimately, when we refuse to believe what God has said is right and true and good, and we believe that we are those who get to determine that, we begin to reject God. And when we begin to reject God, we start down the path of departing from the faith. Isn't it true so many times that things happen in our lives, things happen in the world, things happen to us personally, things happen to our loved ones, and it all is jumbled. It doesn't make sense to us. And instead of bringing it before the Lord and saying, God, you make sense of it. God, I I trust that, that, that you have a plan and purpose for this. Rather than submitting it to God, what do we do? We say, I need to make sense of this. This needs to make sense to me. I need to approve of this. And when it doesn't make sense, we reject God. We get angry at him. We turn our backs from him. And Paul says, he says, this is deceitful and demonic because it actually mimics what Satan did in the garden. Do you you remember, what did Satan do in the garden to Adam and Eve? And, uh, you know, we quickly say something like, Satan tempted Eve. But I would say that he didn't so much as tempt her as he deceived her. Because what did he do? He took what God had said and he twisted it. He cast suspicion on it. He questioned it. God said, you can eat of all the trees in the garden except for this one tree. Satan came along and said, well, did God really say that? I'm not so sure. And then what did Eve do? Eve stood in judgment over both, and she said, I get to decide. So she looked at the forbidden tree, and in Genesis 3, we read, Eve determined that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. In the end, Eve was rejecting what God had said and was trusting in her own opinion. And friends, when we do that, 
when we reject what God has said and we believe our own feelings, our own views, our own opinions, we are placing ourselves over God. And then we start leading down, being led down the path of departing from the faith. God said marriage was good. He said meat was good. The false teacher said, no, it wasn't. Well, who is right? Well, deep in our hearts, there's a, there's a suspicion in all of us, a suspicion that says, how, how do I trust that God in his word is true? Which leads to our third and final point, how to not fall away. Because Paul concludes this section in verses four and five like this. He says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, Paul says that everything God created is good. It's to be received with thanksgiving, not to be rejected. And what is he doing when he says for everything created by God is good? He's actually quoting from the Old Testament. Do you remember what passage? It's going from Genesis chapter one, when God created everything and he said that it was good. And so he's saying to the believers in Ephesus, you can either believe what God has said in Genesis one, that everything he created is good, or you can believe the false teachers and reject God. You can either trust God's word or you can trust man's word. And we're faced with the same dilemma today. The things that tempt us to lose faith, to question God, to question his goodness, whether they be circumstances in our lives, situations we're in, obstacles we're facing, experiences we're going through, opposition in our lives. When we look at those things, so often we have suspicion against God and his word, and we want to include instead, if these things are in my lives, in my life, then God can't be all good. If I'm enduring some kind of suffering, then God can't be all loving. If I'm not delivered quickly from this, God can't be all powerful. And when we do that, we're faced. Are we going to believe our opinions and our thoughts or are we going to believe God's word? Because what does God's word tell us? The truth of God's word tells us that we can trust that he's actually working all things together for good. That the things intended for evil in our lives, that God means it for good. In Genesis 50 verse 20. Or Hebrews 12, that discipline in our lives seems painful for a moment, but it's actually yielding a fruit of righteousness. Or Romans 8, that there is nothing ultimately that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. You see, when we're faced with these things that will question and challenge our faith so as to make us decide, are we going to believe or are we not going to believe? The question is really, are we going to believe our interpretation, our understanding, or are we going to believe what God has said about this matter? And that suspicion in us arises. How can we trust God? And ultimately, friends, the way, only way that we can fully trust God is when we see that he is worthy of our trust. Well, what in the world, how in the world do we have any confidence of that? That's when we go to his word and we read that in his word, God has done for us the most amazing, tremendous 
thing, and that is to give his one and only son. You see, the gospel is the only grounds of our confidence that we can trust God because the gospel says that God has loved us so much that even when we were undeserving, even when we didn't earn anything, but he, out of the goodness and compassion of his heart, loved us so much that he sent his one and only son for us, that he made the great sacrifice of sending Jesus, nailing him to a cross in our place as our substitute so that you and I could be washed clean, forgiven of our sins, made right with God, and given eternal life. You read the scriptures and you read what God has done for us in the gospel, and you believe God is trustworthy, this kind of God who has purchased me at the cost of his son's life. He is worthy to be trusted, and his word is true. And this kind of God who paid for us at the cost of his son's life, to whom we now belong. He holds on to us so that ultimately, how do we persevere in our faith? It's not by our great resilience and our great faith and our great might in God, but by his strong grip over us. The fact that he has purchased us and made us his own so that he promises that we who are in his hands, no one is able to snatch us out of it. And we had up here five children being baptized, and Christopher being the biggest of them all. But if you were betting people, and I held this tissue in my hands, how many of you would put your money saying, oh, Christopher can get that out of his hands. I pray that you don't have such little confidence in me. <laughs> so too, we are held in the hands of the Father who loves us. He has purchased us. And there is nothing that can snatch us out of his hands. God, who is trustworthy and his word is true. As we come to him, their confidence Yes, we look inward and we exercise our faith. We nourish our faith. We don't become apathetic and neglect it. We seek after him. But ultimately, how do we know that we're not going to fall away? Well, it's not based on our faithfulness to God. It's his faithfulness to us. And he has made that clear by sending his one and only son for us. So dear friends, 1 Timothy says that some will depart because they devote themselves to false teaching, but how will you persevere when you devote yourself to the Lord and the truth of his gospel, the good news that in Christ we are his and we are held firm in his hands? Would you pray with me?